Hey, good morning. Um, before I dive in, I just want to take a moment and uh, just say a quick word about the news of this week. Uh, my my heart has been breaking as I've watched refugees who were literally in the air on their way to our country after selling everything they had to uh, and then arrive at our borders um, and because of the executive order that the president signed be turned back. And so I just want to quickly say um, that we tread on dangerous grounds as a nation when we mistreat the refugee. Scripture is abundantly clear that God defends the powerless and his heart is with the stranger or with the refugee. And as a congregation, we want our heart to be where God's heart is. Like I said last week, the biblical story is our story. And it turns out that being inhospitable to refugees is nothing new. But the prophets who spoke powerfully thousands of years ago about God's love for the refugees those same words continue to call us the love the refugee today as our own family. And the prophets also have a strong word for those who would mistreat the refugee, whether it's in 2017 or 2,000 years ago. And so I just want to make abundantly clear this morning that we as a church, we as the table church, want to do everything we can to support and advocate for and care for the refugee because we believe that Jesus would do the same. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for um, your gracious love. And we just pray this morning for refugees who have such an uncertain future as they sit literally in limbo, some waiting to get on an airplane, and some who have landed and who are waiting to find out what happens next. Um, I pray that you, are, that you would be with them, that you would comfort them, and that you would give them strength. And I pray that you would work to bring about your justice. Amen. So today, we are continuing in our series, A Year of Biblical Literacy. And the reason we're doing this is because even though the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, we know surprisingly little about it. And so over the past couple weeks, we've set a foundation for the series, and I'm not gonna recap it, but uh, I, I wanna I try to encapsulate what we've said in a phrase, which is always a bit dangerous. But here's what we said, that the Bible is a collection of books which tell a unified story and reveal God to us and call us to follow the way of Jesus, or to say, another, to say it another way, to call us to follow the way of love. And within this uh, year of biblical literacy, within this journey, what we're gonna do is we're gonna split it up into different kind of bite sizes. <clears throat> and so over the next six weeks, uh, we are going to take a meta look at the story of God in six parts, a, a play or a, an act, or yeah, essentially a play in six parts, or a story in six parts, a narrative in six parts. And, and so this week we're beginning with part one, which is creation. And then next week we're going to hear from Jonathan Martin as he explores the fall. And then following that will be Israel's promise, and then Jesus and redemption. Followed that will be the church. And then finally, we will end with new creation. And so today we're going to explore Act 1, which begins, well, 
in the beginning with Genesis 1. Now, I, I felt that when I was preparing this sermon, I felt a bit like I was doing a Cliff Notes version of a series I did last year, actually at a similar time, called The Dreams of God. And we spent about six weeks just in the first two chapters of Genesis. And so if you want to kind of go deeper, or if as I'm speaking or preaching today, you feel like there's a logical, like I make a logical leap, you're like, I don't see how he got from here to there, uh, I would encourage you to go on our website or on iTunes uh, and uh, you can listen to um, that series, The Dreams of God, where we spend six weeks. But if you've been around the table for a while, you know that, that Genesis 1 and 2, are, I've probably preached in these two chapters more than almost any other section of the Bible. In fact, our very first sermon here at the table was on Genesis 1 and 2. Now, unfortunately, I decided at the time that we wanted to be, not this isn't the unfortunate part, but we want to be a church that's about the Bible, where we take the Bible seriously. And so I thought we should actually hear the text. And so I decided for our very first Sunday ever that we should read the entirety of Genesis 1 and 2 before the sermon. And it wasn't until we were about halfway through reading it, I'd asked somebody else to read it, and we were about halfway through reading it where I realized this is a really long passage and this was a bad idea. So today we're not going to make that same mistake again, so we're just going to read some snippets, but I'd encourage you to go back yourself and read Genesis 1 and 2. And the reason that we preach on Genesis 1 and 2 more than any other passage is because they set the story up. They set the story of the Bible up, and if and they provide context to everything that's going to come after it. And if we get the context to the story right, we get the or we get the context right, we get the story right. But if we get the context wrong, we get the story wrong. And too often, Christians believe that the story begins with sin and ends with judgment. And within this understanding of the Bible, an understanding where it begins with sin and ends with judgment, the Bible is simply a rule book to keep us from the bad place. But the story actually begins with creation and ends with new creation. God created us for an incredible purpose and is relentless, is relentless in working to help creation become all that He created it to be. And when we get the context right, it completely changes the way we understand both our own faith journey, but it also changes the way that we understand the Bible. Context matters. And context matters not only for the meta story, the story of God, the scripture, Christian faith, but it also matters to the text we're reading. And so today, as we explore Genesis 1 and 2, I want us just to take a moment and get a bit of context um, behind these stories. The stories contained within Genesis were formed and emerged during an oral culture. They were shared around campfires and around dinner tables. And they did more than provide, in fact, they were not meant to provide a history or a science lesson, but instead they were to provide purpose and meaning. They give the hearer a glimpse into the dreams of God. There's this great scene in the, in the movie Noah, which is actually not a great movie, but there's a great scene in the movie Noah where Noah gathers his family around the campfire and then he reminds them, or he says these words, he says, I want to tell you a story the first story that my father ever told me, and the first story that his father ever told him, and the first story that his father ever told him. And it was the story of creation. 
And at some point, these stories that were passed down over around campfires and were written on stone tablets and all kinds of various forms begin to be pulled together in a more formal document during the time of exile. And the book of Genesis, the first book in the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures, was written to and from a group of people who were living in a world where it seemed that the villains had won. And exile was especially hard in Israel because they had, since the beginning of their story, they had been told that they were unique and they were special. And tied up within that calling was that they were going to be the people of the land and they were going to be a great nation. This was the divine calling that they had on their lives, that they were going to be a great nation and through them all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. God had dreams and plans for their future. And, and all those dreams and plans for Israel were tied up within this idea that they would be recipients of the land. But during exile, they, they are post-land. They have inherited the land. They became a great nation. They became as numerous as the stars. And now all that has been ripped away and they are in a foreign land as slaves, as exiles. And so in the Babylonian exile, the intellectuals who'd been carted off the brain trust began to compile these documents to begin to answer questions about meaning and purpose. Because empires and administrations, they don't only want the land the countries rest on, but they want the hearts and minds of the citizens. And so while the dreams given to Israel and passed down through the generation after generation after generation slip further into the horizon, the dreams and visions of Babylon are all around them. Empires, empires are great at telling stories and selling everything that the empire has to offer. Whether it's the court in Babylon, or whether it's Apple computers, or whether it's our current administration, empires are great storytellers because they surround you with their version of the good life. They surround you with alternative facts, using everything at their disposal, whether it be advertising, or grand cities, or beauty. And over and over and over again, empires proclaim their truth through story. So the Jewish scholars, while in exile, begin to put together pieces of their oral tradition that they begun that had been written down ages ago, and they begin pulling together these pieces as a counter narrative, as a counter story to say that the world, listen, the world may not be as it seems. Right? The truth of empire may not be as truthful as it seems. There's more going on than meets the eye. Right? It is within this context that the book of Genesis is compiled. It is answering questions about meaning and purpose. And ultimately, it's a counter-narrative to the myth of empire. And these stories are composed, as these stories are composed, they're wrestling with all these questions. Because life as they have known it has been turned on its head. 
And so today I just want to walk through a few of these key passages and just get a glimpse. And we are, we are rushing through this, right? We're rushing through it. And so I would encourage you to go back this week, reread Genesis 1 and 2. Um, go back and listen to the series, The Dreams of God. Um, but I, I want you to just catch a glimpse of this. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, when God created, when God created the heavens and the earth, we are only to the first line of the first book. And we have already received a powerful proclamation that the God of Israel is the creator of the world, and he alone is God. This sentence in and of itself is submersive because it breaks with the view that the earth was divine, right? Within the Babylonian empire, the idea was that the, that the earth, in fact, everything was divine, but the earth was divine. But Genesis makes clear in, this opening, in the opening words that the earth is the Lord's. It is God's kingdom. It is only God is divine. It is God's kingdom. And Genesis continues that the earth was unformed and void. I love these. These are my two favorite words in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Right? This is fun. The, the words here are tohu and wabohu, formless and, uh, formless and void or unformed and void. Tohu and wabohu. And, and it's understood as, as a primeval chaos or disorganization. And they are in direct opposition to creation. The text is saying that the earth was a wasteland, a desert overcome by chaos. And just as a side note, right, we're not going to talk about creation ex nihilo here. We can have another conversation about that. But for an ancient culture, transforming chaos into something, like taking chaos and transforming it, giving it order and making something beautiful, was actually more impressive than creating something from nothing. And so it says that the earth was formless and void with darkness over the, the surface of the deep. And the spirit, the rook of God was sweeping over the water. And this word rook, the spirit, the breath of God begins to sweep across and life begins to emerge. And order begins to come forth from the chaos. And we continue reading that God said, let there be light. And there was light. God creates worlds. God orders. God opens possibilities simply by speaking. Simply by, the, simply by his voice. He speaks the world into being. Let there be and there was. God is the undisputed ruler. The king, the king, the kingdom, the ruler brings order to chaos simply by command, let there be. And in these first few lines of Genesis, we see that God is the undisputed ruler of the creation. Or put another way, the earth is God's kingdom. And if we continued reading, we'd get an overview of what God creates on each day of the week. But here we're really skimming. Um, and there's a sermon's worth of material here. 
But, but here's what I want you to see. On day one, God creates and he separates, he creates day and night by separating the light from the dark. And on day two, he separates the, he creates the sea and the sky by separating. And on day three, he, he separates and creates dry land. So day one, two, and three, God creates by separating. He creates day and night and sky, sea and sky and uh, dry land. And you can see up here, you can see on the screen, uh, this the day one, two, and three, separation, separation, separation. And then on day four, five, and six, what does God do? He fills. He fills it with the stars, the moon, and the sun, right? Day, day one, he creates day and night. On day four, he fills the day and the night with stars, moon, and sun. On day two, he creates sea and sky. On day five, he fills the sea and the sky, what? On day, with fish and birds. And then day six, he, on day three, he creates dry land, and on day six, he fills it with animals and humanity. Here's what we get. Day one, two, and three, the Ruach of God blows across the waters, and we get separation, separation, separation. And then on days four, five, and six, we get filling, we get a filling, we get a filling, and we get a filling. And then on day seven, we get a blessing. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and master it. Now here's, here's why, here's why these scriptures matter today. Because it all begins with the Spirit of God that sweeps over the darkness and the chaos and order begins to emerge from the confusion. Life begins to emerge. The Spirit of God as it breathes and blows across the darkness and the chaos brings life. And how does the Spirit bring life? Through separation, filling, and blessing. Separation, filling, and blessing. And these terms, these terms, right? The authors were doing this intentionally. They are writing a story to communicate a theological truth. And these terms are critical to the life of is are so critical to the life of Israel that when they tell their creation story, they bake the idea of separation, filling, and blessing into the story. So then when we get to Genesis 12, which we're going to look at in a couple weeks, when we get to Genesis 12, right? The, by Genesis 12, right? Actually, by Genesis 3, the world begins to fall apart as we looked at last week. And between Genesis 3 and 11, the beautiful creation of God, a world of peace and unity and joy and shalom begins to unravel at the scenes. And in Genesis 12, God begins his plan to redeem and to restore creation. And in response to the condition of the world, God begins to redeem. And how does God redeem it? He says to Abraham, leave the country of your home. Leave your place of security. In other words, separate yourself out. And what is he going to do? I'm going to fill you with my presence. So that you can be what? So that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the world. This is what the Spirit of God does. It brings life. But whenever it brings life, it brings life in this way. It is through separating, calling out, filling with the Spirit, and then sending forth people on a mission in the world. Right? This is exactly, check this out, this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2. How does, what happens in Acts chapter 2, right? Jesus returns to the Father and, and, and here we have this group of people that are waiting expectantly for God to move in a powerful way. And what happens is they've separated themselves into an upper room 
and the Spirit blesses, or the Spirit comes down and fills them. And instead of having like an all-day praise and worship service, they instead leave the upper room and go out into the world as a blessing. And it's the same way that God works to bring renewal and order to our world of chaos. God's life-giving renewal follows this pattern of separation. He calls a people to be set apart. He calls the he sets apart the ordinary for something holy. He sets apart the ordinary for something holy and he fills it with his presence. And then he sends it forth into the world. I could I could spend all morning here. This is so powerful. But let's keep rolling. We get to Genesis 1, 26. We read this. Then God said, let's make humanity in our image to resemble us so that. And we're just going to stop right there. You, you are made in the image of God. God's signpost that points towards the Creator. This, this right here, Genesis 1.26, is the most subversive claim in the entire story. Because the text is saying that to humanity that you have incredible value and worth, not because of what you've accomplished, not because of whose family you're in or what tribe you're in, not because of the number of zeros in your bank account or because of how beautiful you are or whatever the thing is that people use to ascribe value. Now, God says you have value because, simply because you were created in the image of God. The word used for image here is salem, which literally means statue or idol. And in the ancient Near East, as a ruler was expanding his territory, he would create a statue of himself and place it in the far-flung sections of the empire. I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this, and this is the best illustration I have. It's essentially a dog marking his territory, right? A dog peeing on a lamppost, right? The kingdom, the king would put these images of himself in the far-flung areas of the empire, a place he would never go just to say, this is my land. But Genesis is saying that humanity is the image bearer of God on earth. Humanity reflects God's image in the creation. Humanity is the signpost to the creator. And the text doesn't say that some humans or certain tribes or certain nations are made in the image of God. Now, the text says this, that Adam, or, or humanity, is what that word means, is made in the image of God. And this is so key to the story because, because this deconstructs the lie of Babylon. Where the Babylonians, they had their own creation story, their own creation myth, and it went something like this. that says, humanity was created out of some violent conflict between the gods, essentially over who was going to do what work, right? Who was going to have to do the dishes? And so, as, and so out of this violent conflict emerges slaves or laborers in the garden as the bottom of the social hierarchy who would be at the service 
of the gods. And, and so there's this hierarchy, and you can see here on the screen, there's this hierarchy that goes, right, the gods are at the top, and then just slightly below the gods are the emperors, and slightly below the emperors are the ruling class, and then quite a bit below the ruling class is the middle class, and then way below the middle class is the peasant class, and then if you go all the way to the bottom are the slaves. The status that was held by God's chosen the people who'd been promised that they'd be a great nation through whom all the people of the earth would be blessed, and now they are landless slaves in a foreign land. And Genesis says to them, all of humanity is of equal value and worth. And Genesis is a powerful reminder that all of us are made in the image of God. But it's also a reminder that everyone you meet, that person to your left and the person to your right, the person in front of you and the person behind you, is also made in the image of God. And that person that you like least, and the person at work that drives you nuts, that family member that you cannot handle being in the same room with, they're also an image bearer of God a beloved child. And the text continues, that they may take charge, and the word here is radah, rule. Right? All of humanity is made in the image of God, and that they may take charge, that they may rule the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the earth and all the crawling things on earth. And there's this clue in this, this passage of the dreams that God has for humanity. And the dream is this, it's for them to radah, to rule. This word is often mistranslated in my opinion. It's often translated as dominion or take charge, but a more proper translation is that they are to rule. God is the monarch. The story is saying this, right? God is the monarch. The earth is God's kingdom. And God has entrusted us, his image bearers, as stewards of his creation. We have been made in the image of God, and as image bearers, we are tasked with being God's co-creators. We are tasked with helping creation become all that God intended it to become. One of the books I read in preparing for the sermon was the drama of Scripture. And there's this great passage that says it this way. We are God's royal stewards, put here to develop the hidden potential of God's creation, so that the whole of it may celebrate his glory. That's so good. We are God's royal stewards, put here to develop the hidden potential of God's creation so that the whole of it may celebrate his glory. And we have been entrusted, and we're not going to dig down in this deep today, but we've been entrusted not simply with caring for creation, not simply with just holding on and just keeping things at the bare minimum, but we have been entrusted to help to, as co-creators to help the creation become all that God created it to become. There's a dynamic element to being an image bearer. We build on God's creative power and continue to say, let there be. And, and this again is another whole topic, but, but this is why meaningful work is so key to fulfillment 
and to being fulfilled as a human, to human flourishing, because you were created to rule. You were created to bring something from God's creation. This is why when you are using your hands to create, to garden, to take something and turn it into something else, you often find such a sense of fulfillment. When you create value for other people, when you work for justice, when you help the creation reflect the creator, you are you are co-creators with God. And finally, and we're not gonna, we're just gonna skim on this, but but the final thing I think that's key to understand in the story, we find in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. That one of the ways that we image the Creator is through relationship. God is a relational God. And God is a relational God. And this is stated most clearly, at least in relationship to our relationship with one another, this is stated most clearly in Genesis 2.18, where God says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that humans, that humans are alone. Or it's not good that the human is alone. And throughout the first few chapters, we discover that we were created for a relationship with God. Right? And, and we were created for an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. We are created for an, a relationship with the creator. We are created for a relationship with the creation. And we are created for a relationship with one another. And you, listen, write this down. You cannot be fully human on your own. You cannot be fully human on your own. You were made for relationships. And the relationships that you're in will shape who you become. And in just a few short chapters, we discover the radical truth about humanity. These are words that were unheard of in the ancient world. No one had ever heard words like this before. In fact, in fact just, just in full disclosure, like if you were to go and take ancient text and lay them over bits and pieces of the Torah, you would actually find, particularly some of the more disturbing things that we find in, in the book of the law, uh, you would find some of the more disturbing things that exist there in other cultures that predate the Torah. But the things that are the most beautiful, the things that remind us that we were created for love and we were created for relationship and we were made in the image of God, they exist nowhere else. And the truth proclaimed in these two short chapters is revolutionary. The world has never heard or ne had never heard anything like it. And much of what we celebrate today as human rights finds its rooting in the Judeo-Christian story. In a world that said you were created to serve the gods, Genesis boldly proclaims that you were actually created to be a co-creator. You were made in the image of God. In a world that turned people into disposable commodities in service to the king, Genesis declared unabashedly that you were made for relationship. In a world where people toiled without purpose, 
Genesis said that you were made to create, you were made to rule, you were made to help this creation become all that God intended it to be. You were charged with shaping and molding the raw materials of creation into something beautiful. And when you're taking and creating, or you're organizing, or farming, or whatever that thing that brings you joy is, you are living into a God-given call. And ultimately, ultimately, Genesis 1 and 2 is a celebration of the goodness of God's creation. Religious folks all, all too often pine for the moment when they're freed from this life, right? Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. But the God of the Bible sees creation as good and as a thing of beauty to be celebrated, not as a place to escape from. In fact, God loves creation so much that he, much that he sends his son to redeem it. And Genesis makes clear that the earth is God's kingdom, and it's a kingdom that he delights in. And it's a call to embrace a life of beauty that God has given us with joy because the creation was made for our enjoyment. Now we're gonna talk about how this unravels and how a world of beauty becomes the mess that we live in. But that's for later. Right now, I just simply want us to sit and to rest in the idea that we were created for a life of beauty and purpose and meaning and joy. And every time I read through these dusty texts that have been with us for thousands of years, I hear God speak anew. And here's the word I want to leave you with this morning. In a world where everyone wants to define your identity and your value in relation to some external thing or accomplishment, Genesis says that you are valuable, you are valuable and you have worth because you were made in the image of the Creator. And that the truest thing about you is that you are a beloved child made in the image of your parent. And the truest thing about refugees today, who with an uncertain future, who are sitting somewhere in an airport wondering what their future holds, the truest thing about them is that they are a beloved child made in the image of their parent. And in a world of anxiety and propaganda and alternative facts, Genesis reminds us not to despair because the God who brought order out of confusion and chaos is at work in our world. And the breath of God continues to bring life where there is darkness. But then as now, God is calling and looking for partners to join God in the renewal of all things. Let's pray.